Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy weekly podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talk about the technology behind the energy news. I'm CEO Peter White. Um, we've got with us today Rethink Energy editor Harry Morgan. Hello. Our solar analyst Andrew Andrew Swanton. Hello there. And our new analyst Bogdan Avramata. Hello everyone. On the show today, we look at a downturn in solar investment and we try and understand why. We see how Ford has already been seduced by CATL's new battery design, which was only announced a week or two ago. And we wonder what its battery partners think of that. And we ask what on earth the UK thinks it's doing backing both blue and green hydrogen. Unfortunately, again, our publisher Simon Thompson can't be with us. But first, we're going to go to Andres and ask, something's happened in European utility-scale solar. What, what What's the story? Oh, I'm, I must have made it sound a little bit uh, misleading then, because actually what I saw was this research from Mercom saying, oh, corporate funding into solar has fallen in the first half of the year compared to last year. And I thought, well, that's very strange because we're always saying the solar market is growing a lot this year, which it is. And I put a whole load of statistics in the article to show that uh, from the end of the Chinese module supply. So what it turns out is that the corporate funding which uh, Mercom is tracking, is it's only 11 billion or so. So it's a fraction of the total. And of course, what corporates fund, they don't fund every residential installation. They fund large products, especially the very largest. And when the module price is high, like it is right now, it's the, the utility-scale projects which have their economies of scale undercut the most. They're the ones that have actually been suffering. So what this might indicate is that utility-scale development in general is, is stagnant or possibly even falling. But that still doesn't change the fact that solar in overall is still growing, thanks to the rooftop segment, which is exactly what I said in, in the recent solar forecast we, we put out. Yeah, there's a piece of research out that came out since our issue, which comes from uh, ACP clean power in America, and its quarterly report on um, and basically the same thing, the rate of clean energy deployment. And it just shows 2022 as virtually less than 50% of, of any previous year. And it's all the uncertainty that's in the market. I mean, it's the same thing going on there. I mean, obviously, in America, they've got the additional issue that they um, they strangled all, all the, the forward-looking solar panels by having the Commerce Department investigate uh, virtually every source of solar on the planet. But, I mean, you know, so they've got... Uh, but, I mean, there's still just as much confusion about what what is the right price to be doing utility deals at. I mean, surely, if energy prices just go up, even if solar panel prices go up, they're, they're in the shadow of the wider energy prices, aren't they? That's what I would think. But I think also, as I think I, I think I said on last week's podcast, it really comes back yet again to good old Polysilicon that I just keep banging on about. They charge <laughs> as much as they can get away with, and really that means that they charge right up until the point where it starts cutting into actual purchases and, and utility-scale deployments. So I would actually expect it to limit or, or even cancel some of their larger utility-scale projects. I think that is actually yeah, possible. But, I mean, but at the same time, I, mean, well, I, can, I can launch into the, the exports of solar modules from China in the first half of the year. So we talked about some falls in America, some falls in corporate funding. But then I thought, well, what about China? And, and the exports from China in the first half of the year are up by 74% to 78 gigawatts. 
So that means in the whole year, they're going to be exporting at least, I would guess, at least 150, maybe 160 gigawatts. And then that's before you factor in the stuff that's made elsewhere. And So where is it going? It, it, it's going to the rooftop market all over the world. And, and I take it it's going to non-European and non-American utility installs. No, no, I think, I think actually Europe is, um, is doing fine. I think, and I think Europe has not actually interfered with the import of solar modules from China, really. They're, they've threatened to. They've said that we're going to look into the Xinjiang business, but I don't think they've actually loosed the guillotine on it yet. And of course, Europe has a lot more solar demand than it normally would. So actually, I think it is it is Europe. Probably earlier in the year, in the first quarter of the year, it would have been a lot into India as well. Australia still imports easily from China. Even America itself, actually, it doesn't apply the tariffs, I think, to bifacial Chinese modules for some weird reason, probably relating to some judicial decision, typical typical Americans. So there's a lot of places that China can still export to. I think you actually, can't say that on your podcast because they're mostly Americans in uh, our well, audience. Well, I think they'll agree. I mean, the amount of litigation that gets done regarding policy decisions is, is quite remarkable. Yeah. 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 So there's another story that you've done this week about Next Era and um, how uh, it's going to have uh, inside two years it's going to have a whole supply chain which bypasses china for solar and the, all of its uh, and it's one of the biggest if not the biggest uh, american installer uh, of large utility uh, scale solar solar plants so if next era can find a way of bypassing china presumably that's what everyone is busy doing yeah and and if if uh, if you shut down the chinese supply which they have and then you start shutting down the workarounds where you have substantively Chinese modules being made sort of partly in Indochina. Well, if you, sh- if you shut that down as well, then they'll find some new workaround. And, and something that this, the CFO of Next Era, Kirk Cruz, points out in, in this quarterly earnings call, uh, he reminds us that uh, the, the Department of Commerce said, well, we won't count it as Chinese if the wafer is made outside of China, which is pretty reasonable. So, of course... There, there are already quite a lot of module and cell factories in Vietnam, Malaysia. So, so that's definitive, is it, Angie? That, that if the polysilicon comes from China, that's excused? Mm, well, it's excused from... I, I think, considering this had the wafer, I would think so, yes. It's excused from the whole tariff issue and the anti-dumping issue, but it still wouldn't be excused from the Xinjiang issue uh, and the sanctions on that. What's more is, how do you prove that it's not from Xinjiang especially if the Chinese government doesn't necessarily want its companies engaging with supply chain tracing protocols that are imposed on it by foreign powers. Um, there's, still, there's still some issues but around polysilicon. But the other thing is, I haven't actually heard about that many uh, factories in, in these Southeast Asian countries that are called explicitly wafer factories. Uh, there's plenty of module and cell, but you know, I tried to look up wafer factories and I saw from one from Jinko Solar, which is a pretty impressive seven gigawatts. Now... If they are going to rush to build a whole load of wafer factories outside of China before the end of 2024, which is when Biden's executive order moratorium on the <clears throat> on the tariff investigation uh, ends, well, they could still do that. It only it would only take about 18 months to plan, finance, build, and ramp up uh, wafer factories. So yeah, this. So uh, I I do believe that if Next Era says it has alternative supply routes, uh, I, I believe them. But I don't know if the whole uh, U.S. market is ready, or, or it could be ready in two years. But it could. With, yeah, with the, I mean, this is a bit like, 
Yeah, someone makes a new tax law and all the accountants in the world sit around working out how to try and make its effects go away by bypassing it. So this is, um, someone's made a, a ruling on China and even China has sat around working out, well, if we build a factory that's not in China and we put it over here and, uh, you know, we can get around these rules, okay, let's do that. And, and then the Americans are saying, yeah, we'll buy from you because that won't break the rules. <laughs> It's we're in a situation where solar is poised to grow at a colossal rate over the next seven or eight years, and if that does not happen, we miss everybody misses their climate change targets. So no one's really got a vested interest to stop this from happening, and all these objections have to be smoothed away at some point. Does it matter that China has different politics from you? if it means the end of the world. I think it probably matters less if it's going to cause mayhem. So may maybe we have, you know, some of these politicians have to put some of these things on the back burner. We can't fix everything at once. Let's fix climate change first. Mm. That would be sensible, but I think I can pretty easily political. imagine an American <laughs> politician saying, well, we're going to keep sanctioning China and having a trade war with China and at the same time we're not going to invest billions upon billions upon billions of dollars to make polysilicon factories and all the rest of it and then they just don't have yeah, either. They, they, right well if they don't have either then they don't have solar and then guess what happens at the next election I mean there, there's a piece running uh, in one of the uh, influential dailies in the states this week saying Perhaps Biden shouldn't run next time because he's not really a sufficiently green politician. And no one, no sitting president has ever not run. The only thing they can do is say, I'm a bit too old, I'll pass the baton. Now, Biden probably, uh, that could be exactly what happens. Biden might say, I'm a bit too old and pass the baton. But what it really means is he's failed abysmally to get any, any uh, uh, green climate change policies through the Senate. Um, th thanks to Mr. Manchin. And yet today's news is that Manchin's agreed to some pitiful amount of spending, mm -hmm. something like $359 billion, if Biden will put yet another bill to the House and run it through the Senate. So, you know, these last gasps, we've gone from $3 trillion down to one-tenth of that, and finally the um, the fossil fuel senator will um, is saying he'll back it until the last minute when it comes to the vote when he won't. So, yeah, we probably do need uh, another politician. As things get, as there are more wildfires, as there are uh, more of a rebellion in the energy space, as Americans want to take control of the agenda themselves and put solar panels on their roof and a battery and say, I'm just not even going to pay my electricity bill anymore. As that kind of rev revolution happens in the States, more and more people are going to um, uh, vote for a president that's green. And if they don't have one, they'll put they'll put up another candidate that, that, the, um, that the surveys say will get in. Um, so I suspect that uh, all politicians who ignore the green agenda end up like um, Scott Morrison of Australia. The thing about Manchin is uh, he's in a quite a unique position where he's the one vote that flips the Senate, 
Uh, and that's only going to last until November, regardless of what the exact results are in November. He's not going to be the one deciding vote. So the way to exploit that is to play really hardball and refuse to vote for all kinds of things. And then towards the end, then you finally do vote for something that you have a lot of control over. And uh, as, as you would expect, it seems like he's gunning for energy spending that covers really every energy type. Hasn't he? Didn't didn't he yesterday agree to the to the climate the climate yeah. bill? Yeah, but but it, or one tenth of the original size. Yeah, he, he he did agree, and that's not going to be spent on fossil fuels. So the, it's it's going to be spent on uh, solar panels and wind, and energy storage. Yeah, he agreed to that. But it's but previous presidents have been able to muster that kind of amount of money on their own say so without going through just by negotiating hard on um, on the funding of government. So I'm not really sure that Biden's made much of a, of a victory here. Um, and most of his party, uh, Manchin will just join the Republican Party and um, try and stay in power. Let's move on. Yeah, yeah so we, we moved to Ford. And it was an interesting analysis yesterday. Everybody, it's like, you know how you read the press release, then you read all the stories, and they all seem to be the same. The spin was, oh, we're going to embrace some new chemistries, and we've got plenty of battery for all of our manufacturing of cars. And then they produce numbers which show that they don't have plenty of battery, 100% of, they say they can build 60, 600,000 EVs by 2024, late 2023, and they'll have battery capacity for that. Well, that would require them losing about a third of their American market share in new vehicles. So I don't know who's doing the sums or what happens in Dearborn when the uh, calculators uh, are turned on. They obviously don't work to any mathematics system I've ever um, seen. But it turns out the Mustang and the F-150 Lightnings, which were massively successful at launch, although they they aren't really delivered in volume yet, are going to be powered by uh, uh, CATL's LFP battery. And that was only announced two weeks ago. So it's the Quillin battery, which has these kind of uh, separate cooling elements uh, wrapped around every cell, which all runs under uh, the, the battery management scheme. And it's supposed to have left the uh, Tesla 4860 battery design behind by about 13%. Now, not with LFP, obviously, you'd need NMC or, or NCA uh, batteries to outperform the 4680. But Within a couple of years, I mean, it, the LFP will likely give cars a 600-mile range. So Ford can certainly go with it now, uh, and it may improve over the next two years while it's waiting to uh, to install them in its cars. But, I mean, I don't think Ford's numbers are right. I don't think it can make enough electric vehicles. I think it continues to underestimate the number of uh, electric sales that people want and it continues to overestimate the number of internal combustion engine cars that people want from ford not just inside america but outside as well so yeah somebody just wrote a piece that just uh, went into the detail of the numbers uh, but it's it's quite strange that it's built a relationship with um, lg energy solution outside of America. It's built a relationship with SK Innovation inside America. It thinks they're going to provide, it, it says, oh, they're going to provide all the batteries we need. And then it buys from CATL and undermines those relationships almost immediately before the factories have been built. So yeah, I do think those relationships will continue. But if I'm either of those um, Korean companies, I wonder 
if if it's okay to go to China to get your batteries, how long it is before we turn into this same situation in batteries that we have in solar panels? We shouldn't buy from China. And what that might do to Ford, you know, when's the Commerce Department going to start on on the battery industry in China as well? It's it's only a matter of time. So uh, and 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 those uh, Korean partners have to say, yeah, we're going to build this factory with Ford, but after that. Do they go straight to the Chinese? So yeah, it'd be interesting to watch. Do you expect uh, China to just more and more dominate battery technology? CATL is gro- growing its 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 its, um, its output, its factories by some enormous, humongous number. It's it's going to uh, start a factory in Europe. It's clearly going to start one in America. Uh, in a very short space of time, it's looking at in our Gigafactory report we we have CATL already with eleven factories that will output three hundred and eighty gigawatt hours of battery by twenty twenty five. It's got a stated intent to do about double that. No one is keeping up with CATL in the, and everyone is ramping as fast as they can get their hands on money. And clearly, that's um, what the Chinese government wants. It wants multiple large-scale winners in China fighting each other and and, and crushing the uh, the rest of the, the Asia manufacturing community. Almost every battery factory in Europe, uh, I would say something like 70%, are owned by um, Chinese or Asian interests, and the same in America. So I just don't see how... You know, the American car companies have, have, def- have tried to work purely with non-Chinese partners and purely in factories which are in the United States. But you look at Biden, who says, oh, you can, can only have the full EV subsidy if you make everything here. Nobody is. Some of the car companies with Korean partners are building factories, finished 2025, 2026, that will make batteries in America with American labour. Uh, he says with union labour. Will they make it with union labour? Not sure. Will they make it, all of them? Clearly not, because they're all pitching to far too lower numbers. The the outcome of this is that America's great car engine, General Motors, Ford uh, and Chrysler that's inside Stellantis, are um, losing market share in their home markets. They're losing market shares overseas and China's absorbing it. And that's, you know, there's going to be more of that in the future. And if the, it, the, if it turns out that, that CATL does make the best... best uh, because lower down in the press release, they said very clearly, we're going to work with CATL on these batteries for these cars, for the cars which sell most of their numbers in America. Nobody put picked this out. They just regurgitate the press release. I was I was pretty appalled by the coverage of it. Oh. But um, and, and what's the yeah. situation with like a technological gap? Because on wind, which is pretty old, China is still just catching up on turbine sizes. On solar, China is a few years behind, and you still have companies outside of China that can claim to be the most technologically advanced. But on batteries, is it different? Because batteries has, have ramped up so recently. Yeah, I, th- I think it is different. I think that, um, you know, the 4680, the first companies that could make that were Panasonic and um, and I think Samson, because they, that's a completely new design. It's coming, and the innovation's coming out of Tesla itself. But on, on batteries which don't have thermal runaway... <laughs> and on LFP, where which everyone's headed for, um, CATL is probably the world leader. And as a result of that, it's not only the world leader in 
manufacture but also in design now people might you know get annoyed and tell me oh no we're way ahead of it on in design if if anyone's ahead of it it's weeks not 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 years and certainly not decades so um it is a slightly different scenario in in battery than it is in so it would be quite hard for the south koreans to carve out a niche um with superior technology I think they have inferior technology. I mean, I think LG is responsible for nearly all the thermal runaway events in grid in America and all the car recalls of batteries. I think they're all LG Energy Solution. And I think it's costing them an arm and a leg uh, at the same time as they're investing in the technology. And they're playing catch-up with the Chinese. They're, they're missing the boat. But politically, it's more, it's more acceptable to work with them. And so they've got lots of Americans queuing to work with them. Um, but not if if the cars are just going to blow up. What do you do then if you're a battery manufacturer in South Korea or in Europe and you're looking to defend yourself against uh, these Chinese players? How do you how do you make sure that you can maintain a market share if you know that in reality your batteries are going to be more expensive to produce than those in China? Long pause. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, if we were we were asked by a battery manufacturer um, in Europe uh, how to defend themselves, it is uh, intellectual property, it is R&D, it is having a, a um, research centre uh, driven by all the universities that are all on the right, on the same page, pushing every innovation they can into the European manufacturers, or ditto if you're America. So it's about realigning pure R&D with the, uh, with the manufacturers manufacturing plants and that's pretty much what what you've seen that's what people are trying to do in europe and yeah i think they can keep pace for a while it's th this pure scale with catl that's the issue and i i don't know i, I suspect that the, the anti-chinese feeling is going to be so high that perhaps ford might start rethinking this you know okay we can have catl batteries in our cars in europe and in China, but not in America. And um, that's what most people would have said a month ago. But suddenly, it's just... I mean, they're 20% cheaper, just because it's LFP. If LFP could be used in your car now to give you the same range, it's 20% cheaper. What's the biggest cost in an EV? The battery. And you can get it 20% cheaper. And that price is going down as it scales. So... Yeah, I mean, in manufacturing automation, I don't know where CATL are. You'd have to physically visit all the factories to see. I, th I think the West understand how to automate factories, but I think China does too. So, I mean, that's what Tesla does. Tesla builds in Shanghai and those cars, yeah, some are sold in China, some are sold in Asia. The rest go to Europe. None. Of, I don't think any of them go to America. So... They, they've got the political uh, uh, balance right. You know, if we need to use the Chinese technology, we but we, we can't import it to the America because they, they won't like us for it. So the government in particular. So that's the, that's the aim. But the truth is we've never been here before. China has never overtaken another country in the technology before. And that's exactly Andrews's point. You know, now they have in solar. Well, have they? You know, if you, if you ask the Fraunhofer Institute, who's got the most advanced solar in the world, they'll say Germany. But they can't make it at scale. They can make about 400 megawatts of it, but they can't make it at scale. 
let's move move on um, because I think Harry's got uh, an interesting story to talk about on hydrogen. Um, the, for some reason, we're sorry to bring up the UK, but it thinks it wants a big hydrogen industry and it's supporting both blue and green. How does that work? Yeah, so the, the, the news this week was the... Um the UK's hydrogen strategy, which they continue to push forward with. Basically, what happened this week is that they've announced the schedule and the, sort of the rough structure of their hydrogen business model, which is very similar to the contract for difference. So I think if you're looking at this side of the equation, this is actually a really good thing. The contract for difference mechanism works by essentially people developing projects uh, bid down for projects for a strike price. So for hydrogen, you might be bidding at $2, uh, well, I'm saying $2, £2, £2.50, um, and then you're sort of going down from there in terms of the, the strike price for hydrogen that you're agreeing. Basically then, depending on how that it compares to the strike price on the market, then the government will pay the difference if if the price is above, if the price is below that, and then if, you're, if the price is above it, then the project developer will pay that back to the state. So it's a good way of, sort of securing a solid price for your hydrogen from the start. It's, it's had an ex, had excellent progress in the offshore wind market and has really driven the UK uh, offshore wind market into what is probably the leading market in the world. I mean, China has sort of driven past it in terms of capacity, but in terms of the, the UK size, it certainly has the, the leading offshore wind market there, really. The difficult thing is where the UK is putting this money. And... The UK has continued to push forward with this split view and this sort of agnostic view as to what low carbon hydrogen is. So it's very much saying half of the new capacity, so one gigawatt will be uh, blue hydrogen and one gigawatt will be green hydrogen. Why, why, why wouldn't they just stick to the uh, contract for difference system and say cheapest hydrogen? Because then it'd all be green. Exactly, and I think that's the um, the difficulty. I think what essentially the the logic behind that is that the UK is still um, insistent that blue hydrogen will be needed to reach the scale of the hydrogen infrastructure that we need. I can hear an executive from BP on the line talking into the ear of the Prime Minister. It's ludicrous. That, that's that's the difficult thing. And if you're looking at the big projects that are being funded in the northwest of England and also the East Coast cluster, they're largely funded by oil executive, oil companies like Equinor who are looking to capitalise on sub, sub, subsea deposits for carbon capture. And that's and that's really what's driving this, and it's what's driving the UK towards this towards this combined approach and having a, a transition for the North Sea uh, oil and gas industry rather than simply just moving it towards offshore wind. What, they, what they should do with this money that they're putting towards blue hydrogen is invest it in renewables for now so that there's, there is the underlying infrastructure to support growth in electrolyzers over sort of the next five, ten years. Look, look, if, they, if they continue to... If, if they isolate and say, this is green and this is blue, and they segregate them, that's daft. But if they just say... Who wants this hydrogen project? We want this price. And then they do a contract for difference around that against a, a, a generalised hydrogen market. That's that's being true to form. That's being true to form. And that means that the economic outcome is absolutely certain. Green will win. Blue will, blue will disappear. Or it won't get any contracts and it will go away. But if what they effectively do is give BP a load of money to produce to produce hydrogen from natural gas, or, and they give it to Equinor loads of money to do the same, it's going to become very sinister. 
And we, we're going to have to start investigating very carefully which prime minister knows which executives went to school with, which executives, and, and where are the bank accounts which are paying for this? Because that's the only rationale. Because economic certainty is that blue can't manage. Blue is the price of natural gas. Natural gas price is off the charts at the moment. In fact, Bogdan is going to work on a paper of um, how long will the natural gas price um, be this high. And we suspect it will be 10 years. Um, hopefully that paper is going to be out in a month or so. But really, the um, if it's for 10 years, then you can't make hydrogen at two at two pounds fifty from gas, which costs you seven pounds. <laughs> it's just gibberish. The whole thing really is, and as we've called it in the uh, in the article, it's just a confused hydrogen strategy. So there are again some positive things within the the wording of the hydrogen business model. So that the. the Category low hydrogen defines hydrogen where it's less than 2.4 tonnes of carbon emissions for every tonne of hydrogen produced. Obviously, that sounds like a lot, but it's also mandated that the measurement of that will include upstream emissions. And when you look at these upstream emissions, some studies have shown that the emissions per tonne of blue hydrogen could be as high as 4.1 tonnes of CO2, and it's very unlikely that um, you'll be able to squeeze it down with sort of 2.4, only sort of a small handful of projects with really sophisticated upstream infrastructure will be able to get sort of 2.3 tonnes of, uh, of CO2 per tonne of hydrogen. So realistically, the UK is going to be chasing projects that can't, don't technically exist. So I think that that's going to really become the case when you start seeing this hydrogen this, business model come to fruition and they'll be the pushing for that Biden, to be pushed, uh, increase. Biden did subsidies for, yes. for hydrogen. It was obvious that, that you know, he'd said you can be blue or green, but the subsidies only worked if you were green. And it sounds like that, that's much the same here. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many reasons you can rule out blue hydrogen, really. I mean, firstly, is this is yes, this is a mission problem. The upstream emissions of methane is a reason in itself not to pursue it. It's going to be more expensive um, because you're, than grey hydrogen indefinitely because obviously you're going to always have to install a system to capture the carbon. Is it going to be more energy intensive because you'll need to actually run those systems? And moving towards a hydrogen infrastructure where you're actually producing hydrogen on site to uh, the demand. So if you're producing it at a steel plant, if you're producing it um, as a fertilizer facility, you, what that can be done using green hydrogen extremely easily because you just install the electrolyzers there. You can't have it with blue hydrogen where you need to be co-located with a massive underground storage deposit for the carbon, the carbon that you've captured. Um, so I think really, if you're industry, you need to be investing in green hydrogen. And I think the government needs to needs to see that and needs to see that really blue hydrogen is just an excuse for the, the oil and gas industry to continue selling natural yeah, gas to some extent. It sounds like you know their friends uh, at uh, that they went to school with that work at oil companies. They're, they're politely saying, "Oh yeah, look, you can apply for this," knowing full well they can't because because economically it just can't be reached. Um, it's a strange the world of politics. I mean, I, I, I'm always baffled. Um, we've got the, um, the the prime minister replacement uh, race, uh, for, and the, both candidates are promising to de-green um, most of their policies um, because they're going in front of a conservative uh, audience uh, of of the wider conservative party that are going to vote them in. And then, of course, as soon as they actually get voted in, they'll change those policies straight back because they know they'll get voted out of office if they carry on with a green um, 
without a green agenda. Um, it's difficult being a politician. You have to lie to somebody, um, and, and usually to everybody. What's that expression? You can fool some of the people some of the time, etc. Um, yeah, unfortunately, that's that's a difficult place right now. Um, politicians and uh, renewable energy rarely mix well. Yeah, I. I I also just wanted to bring up something that that Bogdan's written this week as well, because Bogdan's written about um, pink hydrogen, which is essentially nuclear-driven. That, again, all of our modelling shows that that's going to be incredibly expensive. I mean, largely, this is, again, probably something that is the nuclear industry looking desperately at the fact that it's going to be supplanted by renewables at some point in the next 10, 20, 30 years, looking for some sort of future in hydrogen production. I mean, what's happened this week with sort of nuclear hydrogen, Bogdan? Well, I mean, yes, um, if you thought we're done naming colors today or not, because we're going to have to go pink hydrogen. It, it comes from the same um, way green hydrogen is produced, but the energy is uh, generated by a nuclear plant. Um, so we have this new coalition. They call themselves the Nuclear Hydrogen Initiative. It's made by a bunch of uh, companies from the field, the university from Canada, and a few government labs. Um, and really what it's trying to do is push nuclear hydrogen into the spotlight. Um, and that's a bit confusing because the world's stance on nuclear is not really favoring that, uh, that sort of plan. Um, Germany, the largest economy in Europe, was trying, to, was trying to pull the plug on its nuclear program this year, but they're probably going to make a U-turn because of the uh, looming energy crisis in Europe. Uh, the US only opened just one new reactor in the last 20 years, so it kind of shows that the world is not really in favor of nuclear, yet this coalition is trying to trying to push it uh, into the spotlight, like I mentioned. And it just makes you wonder, because Harry, you wrote a, a report not too long ago on, um, on green steel, and you made a really good point about the amount of hydrogen that um, the steel industry is going to need in order to fully decarbonized by by 2050 and in order to meet that demand and not not and not only from the steel industry also from the aviation industry car manufacturer also a lot of fuel cell power cars are in production or plant uh where are you going to get the hydrogen and really considering that like i said the world is not really inclined to support nuclear power in the next 20 30 years how are you going to push this uh, nuclear hydrogen uh, even further to to meet your um, your demand. Yeah, but in the West, um, hydrogen uh, nuclear running at night. It, it needs to, it, old style reactors need to run uh, a flat level. They they don't want to be turned up and turned down and messed around with. Uh, uh, they take a while to ramp. So overnight, nuclear has to run at the at the level that it's running at. And often that energy was used uh, in old and, uh, older days to go into storage heaters. It was a cheap form of energy. That energy is cheap, even though the total, the average LCOE of uh, nuclear is a hundred um, pounds or hundred dollars uh, or more, hundred and twenty dollars per megawatt hour. And the new SMRs are. Uh, pitched at around 55 to 60 and they're way above wind and they're, they're certainly way above solar so but, but that's the average amount you know but but when they're idling at night if they could get more for that energy there is an argument that says well at least let us try 
and and then let's see what happens in the public markets uh, in in the you know as you trade electricity for making hydrogen i, I see no harm in 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 people letting them try uh, because it's most people that are making hydrogen will have dedicated solar solar supply on site plus battery i, I, I can't imagine that it, you know it, it's or, or or they'll be near a wind farm close enough to take um, energy direct on a ppa uh, which is price agreed so i can't i can't really see nuclear doing well out of this but there's no reason why we shouldn't let it try which is why the the um, electrolysis makers, NEL, Bloom, Cummins, were, were all in that announcement. Yeah, I think um, you're right, Peter. I think what we need to see this as and like is a shift towards renewable, 100% renewable energy grids. So at the moment, obviously, for green hydrogen to be classified as green, it has you have to have an electrolyzed paired with a solar plant, a wind farm. In theory, if you're making pink hydrogen, yeah, nuclear facility, but. What we're moving towards, and we'll, we will move towards 2030, 2035, is countries having 100% renewable energy mixes for their power production. So once you're there, you, it doesn't matter where you're securing your power from. It could be because grid power will be green or will be zero carbon. So at any point during the day, as long as the price of that electricity is low, which it will be if it's if it's run primarily by renewable resources and maybe a tiny bit of nuclear, then... Okay, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. So that it will be just be low cost hydrogen being produced through that. So it's not necessarily. I don't think pairing um, nuclear with electrolyzers that's going to be the the issue. I think it's it's going to be creating a renewable energy infrastructure that is capable of supplying all of your electrolyzers for as much of the time as possible. Um, and obviously, yeah, we're looking to increase the capacity factor or the utilization rates of these electrolyzers up from maybe 20 30 percent if they're paired with just a solar farm to yeah more towards 60 70 80 90 percent if you can do it through grid-based electricity or through renewable uh, through nuclear power so i think that's the the trend that we'll see and i think we'll see electrolyzer projects from 2030 onwards being dissociated from the power that is being produced because obviously you'll have green power coming out of the grid itself one of our clients uh, sent in an inquiry today um, asking us um, if we could forecast an LCOE for um, fusion power. <laughs> uh, and I said, come back in 2050. We'll make a stab at it then. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the impossible question at the moment, isn't it? I mean, you can't... Well, if you factor in all the prior research that people are having to do uh, and you've got to reclaim that from the future revenues, it will probably be the worst LCOE on the planet, but uh, eventually becoming the best. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that once you're looking at it in the long run, you'll be, you'll be looking at energy that probably is cheap, but yeah, it's not something that we can, we can project right now. Um, I love the idea that you could write an LCOE forecast of a technology that doesn't exist yet. That's, uh, I guess they know various other parameters, but goodness. Yeah, I mean, you could you could project it based on the price of the facilities that we're seeing now and the, the capacity that we expect to see them running at. Obviously, that's going to be huge. And then obviously projecting that coming down. I mean, I've seen people project fusion LCOEs um, for the future around sort of $25 per mega hour, which could be, it probably is achievable in the long run. But I think obviously the, the issue for fusion at the moment is getting it to a point where it's a self-sustaining reaction and it's probably 10 years away um, as everyone's been saying for the past 20 30 years it'll be it'll be interesting i mean thinking about what things will be like 2050 2060 if it is suddenly becoming commercially viable because if it is then cheap and it, you can be do it on a, a small footprint it could be a case where the new drive in the energy sector is to reduce the land that it takes up 
Obviously, uh, renewable energy at that point will be taking up a huge amount through biofuels, wind and solar. So the, that fourth, fifth revolution of the energy sector could be the retirement of all of the wind and solar farms and replacing that with nuclear fusion. But can we say that that's going to be the case now? Absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. No. And, and I think it's a mistake to even uh, pontificate out loud. F- fish, fission, the lowest point that anyone's suggesting it might reach is $55 per megawatt hour LCOE. At that price, it may have a place in future energy structure uh, using SMRs and distributing them widely and using them to support um, local renewables in the way that battery supports. Um, you know, a, a kind of low, lower, lowest case um, denominator baseline. We haven't achieved that yet. And that, that's, we're still talking about fission. And we're talking, t- talking about that being five years before anyone's got one. Uh, installed so and 10 years before it's installed in multiple places so we, we smr uh, and fission is is the subject we really should talk about when we talk about nuclear and we should not be getting confusing the world with fusion okay so you can find all these stories there are free on um rethinkresearch.biz uh, click the energy button and click weekly analysis. Those stories are free. Why do they exist? They exist so that you understand that we understand how the energy markets work so that you buy our forecasts, which are under forecasts and data. A full subscription to Rethink Energy costs $4,600 per year for your entire company. And uh, uh, we we welcome anybody who wants to send inquiries to uh, simon at rethinkresearch.biz. Uh, and he'll be uh, hungry to talk to you. And with that, we'll call the session to an end, and we'll see you again next week.